Good morning. Whether you're joining us over the live stream or here in person, welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin Sunday morning worship service. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I'm Chris Jimerson, Minister for Program Development at the Church, and I am so thrilled that all of you could join us this morning. I especially want to welcome our visitors this morning. If you're online and you have the ability to do so, please say hello in the comments and let us know from where you're watching the service. If you're here in person, please join us for coffee and conversation in Housen Hall after the service. It's back through the doors in the back of the sanctuary, through the triple doors, and then the doors to your right. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person. And it's in that tradition that I invite you, if you're on the live stream, to greet the holy among us in the comments, if you're able. And if you're here in person, to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us. Good morning. I'm Julie Pache, and I'm your lay leader for today. And it's wonderful to see everyone here this morning. Please join me as we say the words for lighting the chalice together. I don't, there we go. (laughs) This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. For our call to worship this morning, we have a reading from the Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Love and justice are not two. Without interchange, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, no change matters. You make an actual vow to hear the cries of the world, to step into the experience of awakening to the suffering of the world and the desire to bring an end to that suffering. This congregation has a shared set of religious values, and out of those religious values, the congregation worked together to develop a religious shared purpose. It's our mission. We say it together every Sunday so that we might more readily carry it in our hearts throughout the week. Let's do so now. Together... We nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Each week, to explore further what we mean by that term, beloved community, we have a moment for beloved community. This week, I want to start with a video from ABC News for Women's History Month that ran a while back. On this final day of Women's History Month, CBS's chief medical correspondent, Dr. John LaPook, caught up with a medical researcher who has already made her own mark on history. Dr. Kizmikia Corbett is being celebrated for leading a team at the National Institutes of Health that helped develop the Moderna vaccine against COVID-19. It's Women's History Month, and you've certainly made history regardless of gender. I haven't been able to bask in it, really. There's still so much work to be done, so much science to be done, that it's hard to really soak in. Now 36, Dr. Corbett caught the research bug as a teenager when she worked in a lab at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. When you were growing up, were there role models for you, especially scientists of color? 
The first scientist of color that I met was when I was 16. And I like to say that he actually is probably the reason why I am a scientist. That representation that I saw in him, it made me realize that I could do it. Are there kids who are reaching out to you saying, hey, I want to be like you? Someone presented about me during Black History Month, actually, in my niece's classroom. And she said, that's my aunt. And no one believed her. So I had to drop into her classroom. Those are some of the most refreshing moments to have kids recognize and I think think of me as a hero, so to speak. And a role model, right? And a role model. A role model and a modern day history maker. Dr. John LaPook, CBS News, New York. I had several reactions after I saw that news story and interview. The first, of course, was that I just loved that they featured someone as talented and such a role model as Dr. Corbett, um, who helped to develop one of the vaccines that has saved countless lives. The second was that I found myself really irritated with the white guy who was interviewing her for reasons I can't quite articulate. Is cheery condescension a thing? Finally, may we all long for the day where someone that talented and that smart serving in such a leadership position happens as the norm, regardless of race or gender or any other irrelevant reason. Good morning. I invite all the kids to come up here and read a story with me. So this book we're reading today is called The Other Side. It's by Jacqueline Woodson, and the pictures, the beautiful pictures, are by E.B. Lewis. And this book is about a time before you were born, before I was born, not before some of you were born, when people who had different color skin had to live on different parts of town. And in this book, there's a big fence. Do you see that fence? That goes right through the middle of town. And the people with darker skin had to live on one side, and the people with lighter skin had to live on the other side. Yes, Ani. Yes, so now we can live anywhere we want now, but then they couldn't. And so something changed between then and now, didn't it? And I think that things changed because of people like our main character today. Her name's Clover. She's the one who's telling us the story. And when I read this book, I notice some things about her. One of the things I notice is that she's very brave. And another thing I noticed is that she's very curious. She doesn't just think things are the way they are and that they should always stay that way. She, she says why a lot. And she kind of says, well, what if? So I want you to notice as we're reading this story, how many times she gets curious and brave. That summer, the fence that stretched through our town seemed bigger. We lived in a yellow house on one side of it. White people lived on the other. And mama said, Don't climb over that fence when you play. She said it wasn't safe. That summer, there was a girl who wore a pink sweater. Each morning, she climbed up the fence and stared over at our side. Sometimes, I stared back. She never sat on that fence with anybody. That girl didn't. Once, when we were jumping rope, she asked if she could play. And my friend Sandra said no without even asking the rest of us. I don't know what I would have said. Maybe yes, maybe no. That summer, everyone and everything on the other side of that fence seemed far away. 
When I asked my mama why, she said, because that's the way things have always been. Sometimes when me and mama went into town, I saw that girl with her mama. She looked sad sometimes, that girl did. Don't stare, my mama said. It's not polite. It rained a lot that summer. On rainy days, that girl sat on the fence in a raincoat. She let herself get all wet and acted like she didn't even care. Sometimes I saw her dancing around in puddles, splashing and laughing. Mama wouldn't let me go out in the rain. That's why I bought you rainy day toys, my mama said. You stay here inside where it's warm and safe and dry. But every time it rained, I looked for that girl, and I always found her somewhere near the fence. Someplace in the middle of the summer, the rain stopped. When I walked outside, the grass was damp and the sun was already high in the sky. And I stood there with my hands up in the air. I felt brave that day. I felt free. I got close to the fence and that girl asked me my name. Clover, I said. My name's Annie, she said. Annie Paul. I live over yonder, she said, by where you see the laundry. That's my blouse hanging on the line. She smiled then. She had a pretty smile. And then I smiled, and we stood there looking at each other, smiling. Have you ever made a friend like that? Just coming up and saying hi and smiling? I bet you have. It's nice up on this fence, Annie said. You can see all over. I ran my hand along the fence. I reached up and touched the top of it. A fence like this was made for sitting on, Annie said. She looked at me sideways. My mama says I shouldn't go on the other side, I said. My mama says the same thing, but she never said nothing about sitting on it. Neither did mine, I said. That summer, me and Annie sat together on that fence, and when Sandra and them looked at me funny, I just made believe I didn't care. That was brave, wasn't it? Some mornings, my mama watched us. I waited for her to tell me to get down from that fence before I break my neck or something, but she never did. I see you made a new friend, she said one morning, and I nodded, and Mama smiled. That summer, me and Annie sat on that fence and watched the whole wide world around us. One day, Sandra and them were jumping rope near the fence, and we asked if we could play. I don't care, Sandra said. And when we jumped, Sandra and me were partners, the way we used to be. When we were too tired to jump anymore, we sat up on the fence, all of us in a long line. Someday, somebody's going to come along and knock this old fence down, Annie said. And I nodded. Yeah, I said, someday. Our reading today is by David White, and it's titled, What to Remember When Waking. In that first, hardly noticed moment in which you wake, coming back to this life from the other, more secret, movable, and frighteningly honest world where everything began, there is a small opening into the new day 
which closes the moment you begin your plans. What you can plan is too small for you to live. What you can live wholeheartedly will make plans enough for the vitality hidden in your sleep. To be human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. To remember the other world in this world is to live in your true inheritance. You are not a troubled guest on this earth. You are not an accident amidst other accidents. You were invited from another and greater night than the one from which you have just emerged. Now, looking through the slanting light of the morning window, toward the mountain presence of everything that can be, what urgency calls you to your one love? What shape waits in the seed of you to grow and spread its branches against a future sky? Is it waiting in the fertile sea? In the trees beyond the house? In the life you can imagine for yourself? In the open and lovely white page on the writing desk? This is the time in our service where we center ourselves together. We breathe together. And breathing in and breathing out, we fill one another's loving presence, even across virtual space. Some pray, some meditate, Some simply follow their breath to that deeper place inside, a place of greater wisdom, a place where we are more awake and aware, that place where a spark of the divine resides in each of us. Breathing together, We enter into a time of sacred silence together. Let us enter into that moment of silence together now. I invite you now to light candles, candles of sorrow, joy, remembrance, hope.
In my first year of seminary, over a decade ago now, excuse me while I feel ancient for a moment. Okay, I borrowed the head bump thing from our senior minister, Meg, but hey, at least I emulate the very best. Anyway, I was taking this class on anti-racism, anti-oppression, social justice ministry, in which they had us do this exercise, wherein we went back and re-examined the stories we had been told about our childhoods and perhaps were still telling ourselves about them. The questions for the exercise were structured in such a way to cause us to look at class and race and sexuality, and gender identity, and other potentially oppressive structures within society. As I did the exercise, I remember having this sudden moment when I thought, oh, heavens to Betsy. That was one of my grandmother's favorite terms. I'm still not sure what it means. Oh, heavens to Betsy. They told us we were middle class. My parents believed we were middle class. I had grown up thinking I was middle class. Suddenly I realized, though, that my mom used to cook foods like salt bacon and red beans and rice, not because we liked them so much. Well, I loved the red beans and rice, the salt bacon, not so much. Anyway, my mom made those foods because they were inexpensive, and she could make large quantities of them that she could serve across multiple meals. She made those foods to stretch the grocery budget from paycheck to paycheck. She made those foods so that we didn't run out of food before the next paycheck came. She made those foods so that her children wouldn't have to go hungry if the money ran out. After I took that class, I was in the area where I grew up visiting family, so I drove by the house we lived in when I was a child. I pulled up in front of it and was astounded by how small and run down it looked. As a child, I had just thought of it as our house. I never realized that my younger brother and I had bunk beds and shared a room or that my parents had converted the little dining area of the house to serve as my sister's bedroom because there wasn't enough space for everyone to have their own room. I never knew that the shingles that covered the outside walls of that little house were of an era that made it likely they were full of asbestos. And in that moment, I realized that what my parents had been led to believe and consequently what we, their children, had been told that we were middle class was a lie. We were barely above the poverty line, if that. That was quite an awakening for me. The spiritual topic we're exploring this month in the church is awakening. I wanted to share that story with you this morning because it was a part of my continuing process of awakening to who I really am and to how the stories we are told or not told can stifle our emotional and spiritual development. The stories we come to believe or 
conversely, sometimes willfully ignore, serve to maintain systems of oppression in our own lives, our communities, our nation, our world. Now, Awakening is not a one-time state we achieve, but an ongoing, lifelong process of opening our eyes, seeking truth, love, and beauty within ourselves and in our world. You see, I also came to realize in this continual process of waking up that my mom and I had both eventually managed to truly work our way into the middle class, what's left of it, at least in part because of our white privilege, and for me, because of male privilege. As I continued awakening, I also realized that not only had the myth that we were middle class been a lie, it was an intentional lie. It was and is a lie that goes all the way back to the days of slavery in this country when wealthy white plantation owners invented whiteness as a legal construct, construct, implanted racism within the very laws, structures, and culture of this country as a means to give poor and indentured whites just a little bit of privilege, just enough privilege to keep them from joining together with African American and other slaves to quite literally form a revolution. It was a lie my parents were then told all those many years later to keep them from joining together with people of color who were often even worse off economically. A lie to make them feel just enough privilege that they might not join together with people who were not white in voting for politicians and policies that might dismantle a a system that has continued to concentrate more and more wealth and power in the hands of the very few at the expense of the many. And this is just one of so many lies, myths that get told to perpetuate systems that advantage white people over others, males over females, the very wealthy over everyone else, certain forms of Christianity over other faiths, heterosexuality over other sexual orientations, gender conformity over people's personal gender identity, and on and on and on. This is also why we are seeing so many efforts to keep the true stories of slavery and racism and other systems of oppression from being told in this country. We recently witnessed some wealthy, powerful white guys exhibit racism and misogyny in their treatment of a female African-American Supreme Court nominee, now confirmed, who is eminently accomplished and qualified, more accomplished than the guys who were attacking her. Those same men ranted about critical race theory and spoke with derision about people becoming woke. Now, I want to talk about that term woke and its various forms, such as wokeness, for a moment. I know for some it may sound strange to the ears, as it did for me at first. However, it is a term that has a rich and specific meaning for African-American and other leaders in our anti-racism, anti-oppression, social justice movements. It's about more than awareness. It requires 
taking action also. I want to let you hear what the term woke means to some women who are some of our strongest social justice leaders. To me, being woke means that you recognize that the world is not a simple place, that everything is not all equal, that justice has not happened yet for everyone, and that there is a lot of work to be done. Your eyes are wide open and you're paying attention. And you're reaching out and speaking to people along the way and bringing them on uh, to increase the amount of wokeness in your community. Being woke is like eyes wide open, everything is clear. You can always see things that other people can just ignore or they just don't know. Woke for me is just being outraged all the time and being able to stay human and feel outraged about injustice that is happening around me. It's being uncomfortable all the time and making sure that I'm speaking on behalf of those that can't speak up for themselves. Some people know what's happening around them, but they are not doing anything. They're just like, right. well, it is what it is. Yeah. That's not what woke means, that you actually take it upon yourself to be like, this is something I need to fix. Yeah. I need to be part of the solution. And I mean, the thing is to, to do that, knowing that you can fix it, whatever your level or platform is, because yeah. there's always an opportunity for you to do just a little something to support them. I also think about what words actually mean and how yeah. we give them power, right? Are you just gonna wear it across your chest, but actually not live it out? Or are you going to give this word a meaning with your actions, with your daily commitment? And I think in order for us to really progress, we're going to need people to really step out of their comfort zones and have those uncomfortable conversations and not just live in a space where they get to preach to people who already understand yeah. what it means. Couldn't agree more. I think to be woke means that you are aware of the issues and the world around you. I believe it means that you are engaged in the work of justice. This is a time where we just, we can't afford to be asleep. We have to be all the way alert. Without action on the knowledge that we have now, our world will never change. And we need that more than ever. I don't know about you all, but I'm happy to use whatever terminology those folks ask of me. In the struggle for racial justice, I will follow the lead of those most affected by racism. Now, here's why you hear such derision about the term woke. Here's why you hear people ranting against critical race theory, even though it's not actually being taught in our public schools. Because... Because telling the truth about our history of racism makes many white people uncomfortable. Because folks with wealth and power are terrified of what might happen if more people awaken. If we started telling the true story of slavery and racism in the U.S., more people might rise up against the systemic oppression that is rampant in our health care, criminal justice, immigration, employment, housing, and so many other cultural systems. If we started telling the truth about the history of misogyny, the treatment of LGBTQ persons, the anti-Semitism, the religious biases, and on and on that feel, fill the true history of this country, people might wake up and demand change. You see, when people get woke, we realize that even those of us who may experience some privilege because of these systems are also restricted 
harmed, held back from the full experience of the wondrous and varied expressions of all humanity, the great sense of connection and belonging we all could experience if every person was able to express their full creativity and uniqueness. I am always amazed that the people who hoard money and power so often seem so unhappy to me. I think it may be because those same systems that they work so hard to protect have misled them into valuing wealth and power over belonging and connectedness. Everything becomes a zero-sum game and a value system based on hoarding and scarcity rather than abundant love. Such a value system leads to fear, protectiveness, anger, and greed instead of love and relationship. And that's a shame because unlike with scarcity, Love and relationship only multiply themselves when we practice them. I think this aversion to awakening to our true stories is also why we're again seeing the banning of books. This is why we're seeing the don't say gay laws like in Florida and the horrible laws and policies targeting trans youth and their parents who support them here in Texas and elsewhere. Because if we start telling the truth that our children are beloved children of God regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity, that the full spectrum of orientation and identity is bountiful and creative and beautiful, then the gender norms and systems that constrain us all might begin to break down and fade away. If a great awakening were to happen, if we got honest about the truth behind the systems of oppression that ultimately concentrate that power and those resources in the hands of the very few, we might well rise up and dismantle those systems. This is why I support the proposed Unitarian Universalist Eighth Principle, because it tells the truth, makes a spiritual truth explicit. Now, our senior minister, Meg, has been discussing the Eighth Principle the past several weeks, but let me just read it to you one more time. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. My beloveds, I believe this is a vital part of the sacred work of our faith. It is among the ways we can nourish souls and transform lives within these church walls and beyond them. Our own spirituality will only be fully realized if we continually do the work of awakening ourselves and each other to the systems that keep all of us from experiencing full liberation. And then, having got woke, we 
take action. And I think Unitarian Universalism, our faith, is so extremely well-suited to join together with other folks who are also continually awakening and who also want to build that beloved community about which Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. so famously said, I have a dream. Our faith. Our religious values compel, compel us to join together with folks like we saw in that video earlier and continue the bringing of that dream into reality. Our faith compels us to not only do this work of waking up ourselves, but to join with those other folks in the public arena, raising our prophetic voices, lifting up a call to those who would rather stay asleep, who would support autocracy. Our faith compels us to sing that call to awaken aloud so that it rings over the valleys and plains, the hilltops and the mountains, the deserts and the forests, indeed, even across the oceans themselves. Let us join together in that call to awaken starting this morning. Awaken. Let's sing it aloud together. Awaken. Let's raise it up into the rafters. Awaken. Good job. Now let's carry that with us and keep at it. Please join me as we say the words for extinguishing the chalice together. We extinguish this flame but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. I offer you Maya Angelou. You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Just because I walk as if I have oil wells pumping in my living room. (laughs) Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides. Just like hope springing high. Still I rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed head and lowered eyes. Shoulders falling down like teardrops. Weakened by my soulful cries. Does my sassiness upset you? (laughs) Don't take it so hard just because I laugh. As if I have gold mines digging in my own backyard. You can shoot me with your words. You can cut me with your lies. You can kill me with your hatefulness. But just like life, I rise. Does my sexiness offend you? Oh. Does it come as a surprise that I dance? As if I have diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. (laughs) Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past rooted in pain, I rise. 
a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling and bearing in the tide, leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak miraculously clear, I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the hope and the dream of the slave, and so. There I go. I wish you peace. I send you much love. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.